it's the love of God that surpasses all understanding. And we say to you, O Lord, why did you save me? We thank you, O Lord, for your grace. It's powerful, it's mighty, it's sustaining. Lord, uh, I would pray that your grace is upon Southern Grace Chapel, whether it's within the teaching and the teachers and those who receive it, and for the longevity of this church and this building, O Lord, that your name would be exalted and glorified by it. We love you, O Lord, we proclaim that love this morning as the body of Christ. In your holy name, amen. 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 The thing about eschatology, which, as you all know by now, hopefully, that it simply is the study of end times things. With some believers, eschatology is way too exaggerated, and for others, it's not exaggerated enough. So there is kind of a balance that one has to have, and I think it is important to have some, at least, understanding of end time things, because, you know, I mean, when the Lord talked about the kingdom of God has come, what does that mean? And uh, even in what is known as the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. The book of Revelation, that the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. <clears throat> so there's so many eschatological type passages in the scripture that are pointing forward to the ultimate end. So what, what we experience now is only temporary and it's only short-lived. And the ultimate goal of, of God's eschatological plan, redemptive plan, is the future when righteousness will reign without any impedance of sin, when we will be in glorified bodies and we will be in an environment that will be fully free of the bondage, influence, and power of sin, which is a glorious thought in and of itself. But what that looks like, how we get there, is always a debatable thing. All different schools of eschatology would agree that the end times are going to be uh, impacted or initiated at Christ's second coming. The Jews were confused, many of them, of course, when, when the Messiah was to come, they expected that the reign of, of the rule of God, uh, our king reigning in righteousness and and uh, Israel being the head and not the tail of the nations would come to pass, and that their ruler, their, their son of David, messianic figure, would bring them into this glorious state. So when that didn't happen, of course, um, they were dumbfounded, um, and they couldn't accept Christ as being meek and lowly, riding on a donkey uh, of a peasant home, uh, brought up in Nazareth, Things that seemed outwardly negative, no good thinking come out of Nazareth. No Messiah would be like him because of the misconstruction of the Old Testament. I was just going to mention, I uh, recently, well, I've heard it. Even, even today, the Jews don't think that Jesus could have been the Messiah. And obviously, there's evidence of the contrary. But they're blind. I mean, they're blind, of course. Well, even the two on the road to Emmaus, you know, when Christ was crucified and as far as they knew, gone wherever, they hadn't been sure of that at that point. But the fact that even Jesus died, the supposed Messiah, caused their heads to droop and the sadness on their countenances. Remember, Jesus walks up to the two on the road to Emmaus and what manner of communications are these that you're having 
with one another. Well, we thought that Jesus was going to be the one that was going to redeem Israel and so on. And he ends up saying to them, Oh, fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? So that's what they miss. Christ's sufferings before honor is humility. Christ had to suffer first and then the glory comes subsequently to that. And of course, more has to be unpacked in regards to what does that mean, the glory that would fall. But what they did miss, at least, was that the Messiah had to suffer. That's where Isaiah 53 comes in, Psalm 22, and many of the passages that indicates uh, the necessity for the death of Christ in order for the blessings to flow out to the peoples. So, just just for for starters, how many of you... um, have had a strong eschatological view at any time in your life? Did you you had a strong view? How about you, uh, Beverly? I think you look like the type that did. Uh, who else had a hand up? Pat? You know, because uh, depending who you uh, are associated with, as the scripture said, of whom man is overcome of the same as he brought in bondage, I too was brought up in a certain school of eschatology that sounded very convincing, seemed to give a good outline of the book of Revelation, understanding the seven churches as supposedly different sequences of time in church history, that we were now in the Laodicean period, but the Philadelphia period was a time when eschatology came to the forefront, and I will take you out of the hour of tribulation, doesn't really say it's from the hour of tribulation but anyway uh, a lot of those kinds of schemes uh, the the seven dispensations of time Schofield had proposed that there were Bible prophecies that uh, began Bible prophecy I would say was never as big as it became as it did in the 1800s and uh, there was a teacher named Edward Irving in England who influenced John Darby and Darby became what is known as the father of dispensationalism, which up to that point there was no suggestion really of there being a seven-year end-of-time tribulation with, a, with the Messiah, Jesus, returning prior to that, the beginning of the seven-year tribulation, removing the church from the world in heaven or where they wouldn't necessarily say heaven, but they would say out of this atmospheric environment, that's where the meeting was going to be. Meantime, there would be tribulation on the earth. 144,000 would be the Jews that would be going to be proclaiming the everlasting gospel. Many Jews would be converted. The nation would be revived. And Gentiles would be brought in as well. And then at the end of that seven-year tribulation which is called Jacob's Trouble. Some believe that the whole seven years are considered Jacob's Trouble. Some think the second half of the seven years is classified as Jacob's Trouble. And they try to kind of cherry-pick out of the book of Revelation different instances that would suggest possibly that at the end of the tribulation, that seven-year tribulation, that there's going to be extreme hardships, persecution, martyrdom, and so on that will take place in that era of time. And then then it's concluded with Christ coming. Well, it's concluded with the battle of Armageddon, and then Christ returns and then sets up his millennial kingdom here on earth, 
Millennium meaning 1,000 year period of time that he would establish here on the globe. And then at the end of the seven years, there will be another outbreak. Satan is loosed from the abyss. Peoples are deceived, which kind of throws a little bit of a monkey wrench in the whole idea of this glorious 1,000 years if it's going to come to a conclusion like that. Someone wrote a book called The Dark Side of the Millennium. Because if there's going to be a rebellion and Satan's going to be loosed and deceive the nations again, I mean, that's not very optimistic. That's not a real joyous period of time that one would want to look forward to happening when you're bearing children that are eventually going to be deceived by the devil and then God's going to have to intervene and come down and judge them in another kind of a battle of Armageddon, Revelation chapter 20, which we're going to get to as well. So, some of you probably majority uh, had a kind of a vague understanding of, of uh, dispensationalism or eschatology and most dispensationalists um, uh, you were but ironically it's really only in America that dispensationalism had uh, a hold uh, and like I said it, it didn't even come into existence until Darby really in, who picked it up from Irving who was the one that came up with the idea of a tribulation period Irving and, and Darby were companions and, and colleagues and um, contemporaries of one another. And that began to progress. And then later in that century, there were Bible prophecies, well-known ones, the Niagara one. They, I believe the first one was in Swampscott, Massachusetts. And they had various ones. A ladies' Powers Court was one in England. It was a very influential woman at the time. She actually sponsored a, con uh, a conference I believe both Darby and Irving and other scholars at that time were engaged in it. And uh, prophecy became, from that point on, sort of a focal point for Christians in churches. And so when, when Darby came to America, roughly in the 1860s, uh, besides planting churches, he spread the, this message about a pre-tribulational rapture. I happen to be in a church that Darby planted in Boston, believe it or not, that started in the 1860s. It was just a little thing by the time I got to it. But anyway, not that it ever was big. But um, um, Darby, Darby's eschatology caught fire in America. His ecclesiology never did, you know, with Plymouth Brethrenism, which I could go into too in a lot of details because I was a part of that uh, body of people for 16 years. So... Because of its uh, prominence, it, it sort of has uh, become what Christians have believed. And most of your popular television evangelists uh, w would be propagating that and, and this big push with Israel being back in the land. You never hear about the Holocaust and you know why, why, did, why did that happen? I mean, if God moved the Israelites, the Jews, back into the promised land, what, what about the you know, few years before that? Um, the Holocaust. I think that kind of poses a little difficulty with them as well because where do you find that in the Bible? But yet it was a major event when six million Jews were exterminated under Hitler's regime uh, simply because they were Jews and he hated Jews. Um, uh, they were an inferior race and they, I think it was a sublime idea, you guys can fill me in better than I could, but that that uh, the Jews were responsible for Jesus' death so they were they were prime targets for being executed as well. I think that was weaved in somewhere into Hitler's background of thinking. Yeah. 
he was all over the place. But anyway, um, so I just wanted to get that point across that some of you may have grown up in a very uh, strongly held <coughs> eschatology. And usually the ones that hold it the strongest are the premillennialists, dispensationalists. Some churches, probably fewer today than there were, but you could not become a member of the church unless you accepted the pre-tribulation rapture uh, view with a, with a Jewish millennium and, and all of that kind of thing. Go ahead. Biola University, where I got my master's, there's um, a professor that I had there that is no longer there because he refused to sign their document saying you have to adhere to that premillennial position. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. And of course, a lot of the churches, fundamentalists, particularly independent fundamental Baptists, uh, are very rigid about that, generally speaking. Um, and even some of the Assemblies of God and other, other Pentecostal type churches uh, really feel that this is a this is the orthodox view of the second coming of Christ. And I think I went over that a little bit last time. With any questions on? Does anybody have any questions about dispensationalism or the pre-tribulational rapture? I don't want to be too repetitive if unnecessary, but to clarify that view, does anybody have any questions about it? So everybody understands a private rapture, right? Secretive. Those, the church supposedly going to be removed from the earth for seven years. At the end of seven years, Christ returns, and that's when you have the the resurrection of all peoples at that point. Then they're judged at the great white throne and then some are cast into the lake of fire. The others are passed into the uh, millennial age. Come ye blessed of my Father into the kingdom. That kingdom in their mind is the 1,000 year reign of Christ here upon the earth. There's so many problems with that. And then of course at the, at the end of that period is when Satan is loose. The, the nations are deceived. There's a large rebellion that's snuffed out. God destroys the enemy, and then it, everything gets pushed out into the eternal state where it's all righteousness, all perfection. Go ahead, Randy. Um, why do you call it a private secret rapture? Well, that's what they call it. They call it the secret. Pardon me? That other people don't know. Well, that, that's one of the uh, ironies of it. How, how secretive can it be? Right. That when somebody's driving, a Christian's driving a car and gets raptured, I mean, how many car accidents are there going to be? Pilots that are driving, you know, piloting uh, airplanes, and you know, you, you can, it, you know, it's just endless. Yeah, do you handle problems? I was going to say, you know, when if millions of people are raptured, then yeah, there's going to be. Uh, <coughs> people say, well, you know, what just happened? <laughs> and in my quest to try, I studied Bible prophecy for about ten years along with textual criticism, they were kind of hand-in-hand, hand, just subject of interest to me. Um, and it, it was more, uh, in the beginning, in regards to prophecy, I saw more problems. I wasn't studying it just so I could be a prophecy expert, but what spurred me on was to think about some of the problems in the system, and I wanted to try to iron them up as best as I could by studying the scriptures in that regard. And... Um, uh, I, I wrote a little thing for myself, like a hundred, literally a hundred problems with dispensational theology. I never really collated them well and, and, and put them in a booklet form or anything like that, but there are numerous problems with that system. Um, so 
the, the private rapture or secretive rapture where Christ is coming in privacy to meet those that are that died in Christ. They believe it's the church only with the living who are the church together will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air and be with him for seven years. At the end of seven years, he returns with them, judges those on earth, the sheep and the goats, and then the, then the millennial kingdom that closes with, again, a final, final, the finality that I just described, and then a going into the eternal state, uh, which is the ultimate end, where there'll be a new heavens and a new, new earth, wherein will dwell righteousness, or righteousness will dwell. So, um, some of those things are, um, are, you could say there's re- reasons, I mean, they're not all dummies, obviously. John MacArthur certainly no uh, untaught un- scholar. Um, and he would hold to the views, not exactly like Schofield would, for sure. He has some issues with that, rightfully so. But still maintains a rapture and then a revelation of Christ seven years later. Let's look at some of the passages first in the Old Testament. That <coughs> Just think of, uh, of a Jew before Christ coming and before the New Covenant uh, books of the New Testament came into play how they would uh, analyze the future. So let's look at Isaiah 11, and then we're going to go to Isaiah 65, and we'll take a little time looking at some of these passages. Because um, uh, there, there are many good premillennial scholars, and, and, and with good, good arguments. And I want to differentiate, and this is important to understand, between dispensational premillennialism, which we ju- I just described, and the problem with the that, well, I should say, what is uh, the um, character of their view of the millennium? It's going to be a Jewish millennium. So not only are the Jews back in the land, of course, but there's a rebuilding of the temple. There's a reinstitution of the sacrificial system, a re-inauguration of the, the priesthood with the Zadokites, the Levites, and so on, being the ones who are going to be uh, overseeing the temple, which is the Ezekielian temple, because that's the only temple that you could possibly find in the Old Testament that doesn't have a literal fulfillment there or in any time in human history. So therefore, it has to be pushed out to the, to the millennial period. But the construction of it, it's impossible for it to be reconstructed uh, according to the dimensions and all. Of, it has no roof, for instance. There's no roof mentioned. Very simple one. The size of it. It's bigger than Jerusalem itself, the city, etc. Uh, but more problematic with that is the, the, the institution of sacrifices, bloodshedding, and not just, not just offering them, but it states in Ezekiel, if you want to be a literalist, and this is why they come to the conclusions they do, is because of their hermeneutical position. They take a hermeneutical position known as literal hermeneutics, okay? So that they would have to try to see a corresponding uh, event that would match the literal explanation or description of something in the Old Testament. So I'm going to give you some examples of it because they would accuse those that don't agree with a, uh, a literal dispensationalism uh, or uh, millennialism, a millennium, is because we have a, a spiritual hermeneutic. We see the scriptures as, as having 
a broader spiritual interpretation than a physical and literal one. So everything with them is physical, but, but we would say no, not always, and many times spiritual and more importantly so. So Isaiah 11, um, uh, uh, Denise, could you read verse um, 6 to verse 9? Yes. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat strong like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. You have to admit that sounds almost like an Edenic picture right there. As it was in the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve had these animals, these animals were, uh, well, you wouldn't say tame because they didn't, really didn't have to have an impact upon them because they were, they were in a natural unfallen state. So therefore, hello everybody back there. Hi, Andrea. Good to... Oh, it's Cheryl. Um, okay. Um, so, my point is here, as it describes the lion and the wolf lying together, I mean, uh, the wolf and the lamb, it says here, a little child playing with poisonous animals. I mean, this picture seems like a very innocent, naive, uh, unbroke, un, 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 influenced by sin. Uh, this sounds glorious, and that's why... It, 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 it could be seen as portraying a golden age. And now let's look at another one, because there's a lot of them that we could look at. Chapter 65 of Isaiah, Patty. 65 of Isaiah. Just one verse here. Okay. Well, we're going to get to that. But I'm just trying to give you examples in the Old Testament where... You know, if, if you have a literal hermeneutic, now the word hermeneutic simply means the science of interpretation. If, you're, if the method that you use to interpret the scripture in all instances is based on literalism, that this is going to be fulfilled to the T. And certainly they were. Jesus was born in Bethlehem at a certain time. This was going to happen. That was going to happen. He was going to be crucified. Nails were going to be put in his hands. We can find a lot of examples of literal prophecies fulfilled literally. Okay, but does that mean that all prophecies have to be fulfilled literally to be considered fulfilled? And I think there's lots of examples that we could turn to in the New Testament and say, wow, look at what the New Testament does in treating Old Testament passages. That to me was a big, big key. As Augustine says that the New Testament is concealed in the Old Testament and the Old Testament is revealed in the New Testament. So, these things work in balance with one another. So, we, we don't, like John Riesinger said, dispensationalism cuts the Bible in half, the Old and the New Testament. In some cases, the other extreme is by leveling out the two Testaments so that we have a continuity unbroken versus a discontinuity. And I think you have to have the balance of seeing what's discontinued from the Old Testament into the New and beyond and what is uh, continued. So that, that's, that's a big topic of continuity versus discontinuity. 
just kind of some simple examples would be we don't sacrifice animals any, anymore. There's no need to shed blood because Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We don't have to have circumcision literally applied because the New Testament tells us that we are the circumcision. That's a perfect example of something literal in the old that has its spiritual application in the new. And even the Sabbath. What ones want to emphasize the necessity of having a seventh-day Sabbath rest because of the teaching of the Old Testament, whereas the New Testament we have Jesus describing himself as the Sabbath keeper in the rest that we have in Jesus. So we have the Sabbath enjoyed with us all the time, every day. And the New Testament, of course, plays down the, the necessity. You observe days and months and years. I'm afraid of you, Paul says. That you have gone back in the New Testament, Paul's treat, treat, treatise on, on days and months and so on. He says, he that observes the day, to the Lord he observes it. He that does not observe the day, to the Lord he does not observe it. So Paul is playing down the role and the importance that it was at one time, because there's a transition going on when we come into the New, that those things aren't acted out the same way as they would have been in the Old Testament. You follow me? If you have a question, just raise your hand or jump in, all right? No problem. Okay, we're looking at Isaiah 65:22. Uh, um, Susie, nice and loud back there. Last, last verse of Isaiah 65. 22. Isaiah 65:22. Oh no, I'm sorry, 25, not 22. Go ahead. So when you read a passage like that, you say, well, that wasn't happening in Isaiah's day. It wasn't happening in the captivity period. It wasn't happening in the return from captivity. It wasn't happening in the New Testament period, obviously. It's not happening in our period. So you'd say, well, when is it going to be fulfilled? Oh, it's going to be fulfilled in millennium. That's the catch basin for a lot of Bible prophecies when you can't fit them into any of these eras you find the millennium, you kind of pluck that out and say, well, that's when that's going to be fulfilled. Well, anyway, there, there is some reasonableness about understanding this that way. Go ahead. But then how would they respond to the fact that a sinner, a hundred years old, oh. would be cursed? Yeah, what verse was that, brother? Back in verse 20. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, read that. That's a no good more one. shall there be in it, and it lives for a few days. For an old man who does not fill out all his days, but the young man shall die a hundred years old. Mm. And the sinners and the sinner hundred years old should be accursed. So you would think in the millennium if they're going to live a thousand years, why are they going to be dying when they're a hundred? Yeah, thank you. Uh, thanks for bringing that one up. That should have been mentioned by me. Um, another example: Do we take these verses figuratively or literally? Okay, the dispensationalists and some thoughts on Bible interpretation would state, yes, we've got to take these verses literally. But the problem is, if the New Testament interprets them figuratively or spiritually, then who am I going to believe? Am I going to believe what the text in the Old Testament says according to my literalistic mentality of understanding it? Or am I going to base it on what the New Testament teachings teach on that? Go ahead, Denise. The one that Pat just read uses the word accursed, too. And we know there's not going to be anything accursed in the final... You know. 
Yes, and another example I, I just thought of now as you mentioned that. If you read in Ezekiel 40 to 47, it talks about this Ezekielian temple and all mm-hmm. these glorious things about it. It says there that you were not allowed to use in any of your offerings anything that had died. Mm-hmm. But supposedly in the millennium, nothing is going to be... De- animals are not going to be put to death. They're not going to be uh, carnivorous animals that will be feasting on one another, which they do now. You know, a fowl of the, the buzzards will come down and pick up, you know, fish right out of the water. You know what I mean? Funny to watch that happen, but they just scuba dive there and come right up with a mouthful. Uh, okay, let's look at another one less familiar. Zechariah, the last book before the last book, just before Malachi. Zechariah 12, I mean 14. <clears throat> Zechariah 14, you got it, Bev? The last chapter, 14. And if you could read from, uh, let's say, 16 uh, and 17. That's just another example, and again, that brings up the idea of the prominence that ones want to place on Jerusalem itself. For instance, and you don't have to turn to this, but we were reading this at the conference yesterday. Um, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go unto the house of the Lord. Our feet shall stand within thy gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem is builded as a city that is compact together. Um, pray for the peace of Jerusalem, uh, etc. Um, so that you can see where this sort of eschatology can be found in the Old Testament that sort of poses this prospect of a, a glorification on earth here that will be... Uh, uh, will have Judaistic characteristics about it. The thing is about this, though, is that when the scriptures were written, they were written to Jews who were understanding it in language that would have been in within their vocabulary. But obviously, the language is such that it's it's exaggerative. It's um, a euphoric sort of language, Edenic like. So God was stating things in ways that the Jew would comprehend about a future glorious day. Now the big question is, were these passages and we could look at more, Daniel chapter 9 is another problem, 70 weeks of determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city and so on. Um, and again this future, this future idea of something glorious that is coming one of the big questions is, okay, is it the church in the church age that we are living in. Could these passages have application, interpretation, 
in the current state of the church right now. I'm not talking about 21st century particularly, but since the church came into existence. Um, things are mucho different now. Scripture says that God was going to gather out of the nations a people for his name. Acts chapter 15, right? That's, that's something very unique. Whereas it was very esoteric and very confined in the boundaries of, of Israel in the land itself. Go ahead. So basically we're just reading. Those were all uh, promised under the Old Covenant. Right. That's, that's no more. Okay. But that doesn't mean that those scriptures don't have application for a day either their day which we can't see that we know from what we know of the Old Testament that the lamb and the wolf weren't lying down together and pictures like that weren't occurring in the pre-Christian era nor are they occurring literally this is the way I guess best to put it it wasn't happening literally in either the Old Testament or literally in the New Testament but could it be written down in the Old Testament literally, but with a figurative spiritual interpretation in the New Testament. So we could look at a couple of passages in the New Testament and see the way the Old Testament is treated by the New Testament writers. And I, I, I can't place enough emphasis on that. You mentioned Greg Beale. I mean, he's, he, him and the D.A. Constan wrote a great book on, uh, what's the title of that one with the Old and the New Testament um, the big volume, fifty-two dollar one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. How the Old Testament is being fulfilled in the new in the New Covenant period of time. For the literalist, that's bonkers to them. That's nuts. They they can't buy that at all. They they think that oh they they they've uh, minimized the inspiration of Scripture because they've given it a spiritual interpretation, which brings it to a faulty conclusion. But let's look some simple ones. Let's go to Book of Acts, which would be a great place. Um, just for your information, too. The New Testament quotes the Old Testament how many times? Denise Gallant? I don't. You, <laughs> you know, reading books. You haven't come to cross, cross that yet? No, but how about you, Susan? No, Susan's can answer that question. 1100. Oh, not too far off the road. There are about 325 literal quotations of the Old Testament and the New Testament, but phrases from the Old Testament, allegories, um, uh, other translations, uh, uh, broader ones like Targums and so on that, that would interpret uh, Old Testament passages in kind of paraphrastic ways. They're, they're, it totals close to 1,000 which means about one-eighth of the New Testament contains the Old Testament um, in, in one way or another, which tells you how important of a role the Old Testament has in New Testament understanding. I came to that conclusion when I was reading the Scriptures myself, and I couldn't... Uh, uh, I, I couldn't... Uh, who is Elijah? Who is David? You know, This is when I was first saved. And I said, boy, i got to get myself into the Old Testament. Go ahead, brother. It's so important that we're doing an entire Sunday school series on it. <laughs> yeah, right. Thank you. So anyway, we're looking, Ron, at some passages now in the book of Acts. You're allowed to do your duties over there. <laughs> Didn't mean to signal you out, but keep the door open if you want to hear. <laughs> this is important stuff. Acts chapter 2. 
Okay, so Peter's standing up on Pentecost. The Spirit has come down, as Jesus said, it, wait in Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. Mm-hmm. So they're in a prayer session in Jerusalem. The Spirit descends upon them in a very unique way. Uh, tongues of fire, uh, and wind, uh, extreme expressions describing the the, the uh, descent of the Spirit upon the body of believers that were gathered together and, and now Peter takes the, the bull by the horn so to speak the one that was denying the Lord is now going to proclaim him publicly okay if you arrest me if you kill me I don't care the Spirit of God is in me now and I'm going to proclaim to you the message and he begins to tell him about the gospel and begins look at verse 14 we'll, we'll read that but Peter stood up with the eleven. He lifted up his voice and he said, You men of Judea and all you who are in Jerusalem, be this known to you and listen to my words. For these people, we're not drunk as you think. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. Because that's what they're being accused of. Because people were hearing them speaking in foreign languages that were, like when we say, well, that's all Greek to me. Well, that, that's what they were essentially saying. What's this jibber-jabber going on? They didn't know because there were about 15 different languages that were being spoken and heard by devout people that were coming to Jerusalem for Pentecost. Okay? So this was prime time to launch the gospel when you've got a pilgrimage like to Mecca to the, the, the Jews and devout people coming to Jerusalem for this great feast. And they hear this noise, and they, they, they're, many are gathered together, and then the apostles are out there, and Peter stands up and says, Hey, heads up, listen up what's happened. Mm-hmm. This is what's going on right now. In verse number 16. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. Right there should be like, well, this really deserves attention right now. Peter's quoting now from the book of Joel saying, heads up everybody, the book of Joel is now coming to fruition. Passages of Joel that were written for a fourth time are now having their current revelation and interpretation for us right now and realization. So he goes on to say, um, it shall come to pass that in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, so it wasn't just to the Jews, right? Because who do you have in the audience? You have the Medes, the Parthians, the Elamites, the uh, Judeans, the Cappadocians, Pont- all of these people from various countries of the world have come to Jerusalem. So God is now speaking to these nations through the apostles in multiple languages, the languages of the people that were hearing them in their own native language. Not just the words, but even the, the accents. You know, I, I can maybe learn a foreign language, and most people can tell if you've learned it or if it's your native tongue. Because you just have that kind of brogue or whatever that goes along with being a native of that country. So they were hearing not just the tongue, but they were hearing the dialect of the speakers, which made it even doubly impressive. So that the tongues weren't just a language, it was the tongue with the dialect that went behind it. And they were dumbfounded, like, how is it that we're hearing these wonderful works of God? So he goes on to say in verse uh, uh, and the 17, your sons and your daughters will prophesy, 
Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. On my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my spirit and they shall prophesy. Now when was this happening? This is that. That's how uh, Peter introduces this verse. This is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. Not something futuristic. It's something current. In the last days. When's the last days? When Jesus came into the world. God hath in these last days sent to us his son. So the last days began at Christ's coming. You have the Jewish days. Now we're in the Gentile days uh, beginning with Christ's coming. And now the formation of the bride, the church, you could say is taking place. Because he begins by saying, I'm going to pour out my spirit on all flesh. That means, that means Italians. That means Greeks. Romans. You name it. All the nationalities. God's going to pour a spirit upon all of them as well. Now, to the Jew, they were very esoteric country people. This is we are Jehovah's children. You know, we are the spiritual covenant family of, of Jehovah God. And Joel says, "No, no, no." In that last days, God's going to pour a spirit on all flesh. That's why the conclusion of Joel's quotation, Peter's quotation of Joel, is that, and whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, shall be saved. So that it's, it's not exclusive to, to the Jews any longer. This is, a, this is a major breakthrough. This is a watershed point in, in history here, uh, eschatologically now, when God, is, is Peter, is inspired by the Holy Spirit to open up the book of Joel and say, this is it, folks. Like when Jesus opened up the book of Isaiah and said, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. That's in the Gospel of Luke, right? Here we are in the, the, the Gospel of the Book of Acts. You could say, by Luke, the same author. There's so many parallels, Denise, between Luke and Acts. You need to get familiar with those two books. It's amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. It really like unfolds, but isn't that interesting? Jesus' ministry begins with opening up the Scriptures. Here the New Testament church age is beginning with opening up the Scriptures and Peter's opening up by the Spirit given into him, so to speak, to be able to open up and say, this is that. So when Jesus reads from the book of Isaiah, he said, this day the Scripture is fulfilled in your ears. Same language. Okay, go ahead. Tony, have your hand up. Well, didn't Bill Clinton say, it depends on the meaning of the word, is, is. And so it's not actually taking he is literal. See, now this brings, that's a good point. And, and that brings up what, what I was saying earlier. And if we read on in verse uh, 19, I will show wonders in heaven above and signs on the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. You probably heard of John, uh, which is in Hades, uh, the blood moon and all of that emphasis about that's going to be it, you know. And, and he's taking this, this, this verse right here and talking about blood moons that be, they happen periodically and supposedly that's the clue that we're, that Jesus is coming is, is right around the corner, you know, although. Um, it's just another one of those examples that's embarrassing to the church to tell you the truth. It's blood moon is fairly common. I mean, if you pay attention to that, every once in a while you'll see we're going to have a, a blood moon tonight. I guess you'd have to read his book to see what his take particularly is on the blood moon. I, I probably studied it one time, but I don't, I don't follow yeah. it closely enough to be able to say well, that. It's a lunar but, eclipse. Huh? It's a, a blood moon is a full lunar eclipse. Right? Yeah, and, and that's rare, right? 
Yeah, I sent around that joke. Well, not a joke to this week, but like this election day will be the first time in American oh. history that there's a, a, a lunar eclipse. Oh, coming. right, right. I was right. joking about it. You'd be looking at the old men prophesying and coming in the dream, right? And it won't happen again for another 327 years, so you know. <laughs> so, with, with these descriptions about the. Uh, the atmosphere and the celestial bodies uh, being affected this way, fire and vapor, mm-hmm. smoke, the sun turned mm-hmm. into darkness, the moon into blood before the great notable day of the Lord come, and it should come to pass that whoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Mm-hmm. Would that not be, fa- again, an example of, figure- of language mm-hmm. being used figuratively, mm-hmm. saying there is going to be a, a gymnastic event taking place here, mm-hmm. something drastic, mm-hmm. Dramatic, catastrophic in the sense that this, this is how the gospel is being launched, described in a way that the Spirit is being poured out on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters are going to prophesy. Your old men are going to see uh, uh, dream dreams. And your young, no, what the young men see visions and old men dream dreams. You know, this, this is like, you could say, magnifying the language because of the day in which it was occurring. This is powerful stuff here. Uh, this is the, the ball being shot out of the cannon, so to speak. And, it, and it's described with this lofty language that if it's taken literally, you'd say, well, that didn't happen. But Peter says, this is that which is spoken by the prophet Joel. He quotes the passages that have to do with the moon and the sun and, and, and the clouds and all of that kind of thing. But and then he concludes it and says that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved which is what happens in the gospel. You were saved because, of, because you called on the name of the Lord. And you weren't a Jew. You were a Gentile. You were from these far-off countries. You were not near. You were far off. Yet we've been brought near by the gospel that the Lord allows you to hear it and believe it and trust it. Now let's move on because i only got a few more minutes left to uh, get this thing rolling a little bit. In verse 29, men and brethren, again, he's sort of wrapping it up. Let me freely speak to you about the patriarch David. He's both dead and buried. His sepulcher or his tomb is with us to this day. And therefore, he, being a prophet, knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. When is Jesus going to sit on David's throne? That is a big thing. For a David to be risen up and to be sitting on David's throne. This again is why it's important to know your Old Testament. Do you know anything about the life of David? Do you know what the Davidic covenant was when God made a promise to, to David that while you sleep, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to build a house, I'm going to build a kingdom. That's why Peter says about he's dead He's sleeping. He, his body is in the ground. And while that's happening, God is going to raise one up to sit on David's throne. While David is not even in existence on this earth, he's out of the picture. But Jesus is now going to be the fulfillment of the King David sitting on David's throne. And David was known for his sufferings, like Jesus suffered, but the future day of glory was ahead. So it will be here in regards to Jesus. And it begins when he was resurrected. As we read on in verse number 31. And he, that is David, seeing this before, he spoke of the resurrection of Christ 
that his soul was not going to be left in Sheol or Hades, which is the place of departed spirits, neither would his flesh see corruption, that's the two components of us, the spirit part and the body part of us, Sheol being the spiritual part, the body being the corruptible part. This Jesus, verse 32, God raised up, and we are witnesses, and this is important, verse 33, and he, therefore being by the right hand of God, exalted, and received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has shed forth this which you now see and hear. God crowned him with glory at his own right hand and could say, Son, sit thou here until I make thine enemies thy footstool. So where is Jesus right now? He's on the throne of David. And he's reigning. This is something that dispensationalists don't believe that Jesus is reigning. He's on the throne. He's exalted. Hebrews says that God's crowned him with glory and honor. He's given a name above every name. Then at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. That's why we tell people, you've got to bow the knee. You've got to repent. You've got to obey the gospel to get right with God. Jesus is reigning from heaven and someday he's going to come back and you're going to visibly see him and stand before him. We beseech you to bow now. Go ahead, Susan. Where does who think they, he is? They agree that he's at the right hand of God, but what they disagree is about is that he's a king right now and that he's reigning right now. So, uh, because time's really short, go to the 15th chapter. Let's follow up a little bit more on David. Actually, go to the 13th first, chapter 13. Chapter 13, yeah, there's so much here there. Uh, Chapter 13 of Acts, and uh, follow along with me on verse number 33. We declare unto you, and again, this is is Paul now, this is not Peter, but Paul, preaching in the synagogue. We declare unto you the good tidings of the promise which was made to the fathers. God fulfilled the same to us, their children, in that he raised up Jesus How does yours read there? Raise up Jesus and what? As also it is written in the second psalm. Thou art my son. son. This day have I begotten. So there's a new day that has dawned with the resurrection of Christ. His sonship has been ramped up, so to speak. His exaltation. Now I want you to go down for the sake of time. Go to verse 34. And concerning that he raised him from the dead, now no more to return to corruption, he said it this way. I will give you the sure mercies of David. What? I'm going to give you the sure mercy. So we have Christ sitting on the throne of David. We, the recipients of of the gospel, have the sure mercies of David. And go to the 15th chapter. And now this is James. So we have Peter. We have Paul. And now we have James at the Council of Jerusalem who seems to be the the main man, the spokesman or the moderator, if you will. And and after he heard the testimonies of uh, others, and especially of of Peter's and Paul's, and Barnabas was with him at that time as well. And and, and now in verse number uh, 13. You with me? And after they held their peace, James spoke up and said, Men and brothers, listen to me. Simon, this is Peter, declared how God at the beginning did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. 
Do you remember when Jesus said, I'm going to give unto you the keys of the kingdom of heaven? That's what's being referred to. Peter says that, that the, the, the Lord made, made uh, at first me to be the one to ch- he's chosen to open up the doors to the Gentiles, right? And he was the one that went into the house of Cornelius, remember? And he went up to Samaria as well when the Samaritans heard the gospel. So Peter is now getting exposure to Gentile inclusion. He goes into the house of Cornelius with much trepidation, like, what am I doing here? I've never eaten anything common or unclean. These are four-footed, these are four-footed beasts. I shouldn't be eating, touching any of these unclean Gentiles. So he's going in there like, God, I know you. He's going to have to push him in. And he gets in there, and the Gentiles are falling at his feet, worshiping his feet because he's bringing the glad tidings, about to bring the glad tidings. So Jesus had told him that you're going to be given the keys to the kingdom. You know, the, the, the Catholics have totally confused that whole whole interpretation of it. But that's that's one of the key interpretations of Jesus, Peter being given the keys to the kingdom because now the door is being opened wide for the Gentiles to be included in the family of God. Okay, so let me read on with you now, verse uh, fifteen. In this, to disagree the words of the prophets. Notice that plural, and he's quoting now from Amos chapter nine. After this. I will return and will build again the tabernacle of what? David, which has fallen down. And I'll build again the ruins thereof. And I'll set it up so that the remnant of people might seek after the Lord. That's the Jews, a remnant of the Jews and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, says the Lord, who does all these things. You get that? Okay, so he's, a, he's on the throne of David. We've got the sure mercies of David. And now we have the tabernacle of David is being built. How? God is calling out of the nations of people for his name. Forming what? You also as living stones are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer a spiritual sacrifice. So we're forming the house or the tabernacle of David. So there's a bit of, you could say, Judaistic painting here in the life of the church. We have scripture, Jewish scripture references that have its full realization in the church. Go ahead, Brother Tom. Well, I just can say that the dispensational of this text specifically is also, in a holistic sense, in terms of interpreting the Old Testament and the New, is that they made the same mistake as the Jews did while Jesus was walking on this earth when he said destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. Again, and he says he spoke of the temple of his body. Yeah, amen. And shut that up. I'll close in prayer. We get to preach these glorious truths about what's ahead for us and what we have at the present moment, Lord. We thank you that uh, all of Scripture we know will be fulfilled in accordance with how you design it to be. Help us, Lord, to enjoy what we can understand now and uh, be blessed in it so that, Lord, we can serve you more. And we can appreciate Jesus being on the throne of David so that we can with more boldness uh, spread the gospel to the lost and inform them that Jesus Christ is Lord. Hear our praise, Lord, and thanks as we ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.